0: Luke chapter nine, Luke chapter nine. We're going to pick up in verse forty six where we left off a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago actually. I think it was, it was nice to enjoy a little break uh, from the routine, uh, the mundane. The last couple weeks, you know, Chuck did a great job last week uh, preaching. I, I apologize a little bit for not giving him a formal introduction. Myself, um, I failed to do the same for Jerry Robertson a few weeks ago when he preached. I guess I felt a little awkward introducing people that are members of our church. But Jerry here, he sits in the third row right on the aisle. Chuck sits in the fifth row right on the aisle. They're great guys. Stop by and say hi. And uh, and you know who you are. There, there's your formal introduction. But thank you. You, you, you both preached exceptionally have you engaged in the debate yet about which of you was the greatest? Not yet? Just with my wife. Just your wife. Because, as ill mannered as that scenario may sound, it is the picture that we are now seeing of Jesus' disciples beginning in verse 46. To put the story in a little context, Jesus and the twelve had just departed the base of the Mount where the transfiguration took place. It's also where the disciples had miserably failed at casting out a demon, remember three weeks back. File that away in your mind, because it's going to become essential to the interpretation of our passage. They each failed, but fortunately Jesus arrived, he saved the day, and he expelled the demon from the young boy. And after asking Jesus why they couldn't cast out the demon... The narrative supplied in Mark 9 verse 19 exposed the error that they hadn't even bothered to pray. Essentially, they were trusting in their own ability rather than relying on the power of God and asking God. Now for a quick footnote, if you're wondering three weeks ago as to why I didn't mention the notion of fasting, as seen in Matthew 17:21, you can go there later on. And uh, you'll notice that verse is printed within square brackets. Then you can reference the footnote at the bottom of the page as to why. And you'll understand why I didn't use Matthew 17 verse 21 as an authoritative text for using fasting as a mechanism to cast out demons. Fasting, as we have studied in depth in the past, going through Jonah and uh, other books, It's consistently presented in the Bible as a demonstration and expression really of sorrow and mourning over sin and circumstance. We see that with Nehemiah, the prophets, uh, those who were uh, ministered to by Jonah in Nineveh. And uh, that's all it is. There's no mystical power in fasting. Not a means of sanctification or becoming more holy. If it were, the New Testament epistles are strangely silent. When we're supposed to be coming more like Christ and crucifying the flesh and and avoiding sin, if fasting were a means of sanctification, it's very uh, peculiar that the apostles didn't give us that indication. Complete silence on the practice. Instead, we know we're sanctified through the Word of God and prayer. You'll see that in 2 Timothy 3.16. Fasting, sackcloth, Ashes, they're expressions of lament over sin and and the circumstances that sin has carried us into. But if the inclusion of fasting in Matthew 17, 21 is to be taken as original, which which I'm willing to grant, all it could suggest is that the disciples not only failed to trust God and pray, but they also failed to display any sorrow, any remorse, any compassion for the grave condition of that boy. In contrast to Jesus, they had no splunknitzamai, no compassion, as we've studied the picture of Jesus through uh, the gospel so far. What they do instead of showing compassion is they depart the scene after arguing with the scribes, and now they begin arguing with one another. As they are walking back to Capernaum now, after leaving the Mount of Transfiguration, they're bantering back and forth to one another, debating which of them is the greatest. What we view in the passage, it's an ugly scene, folks. a shameless self-glorification. So Jesus, undoubtedly frustrated with with the um, immaturity, of the disciples, he he provides them with a, with a visual illustration in our passage. The exchange recorded in Luke, it's brief compared to Mark. You'll also find the same account in uh, in Matthew, as we read earlier, um, Matthew eighteen, Mark chapter nine, Luke chapter nine. It's also brief um, compared to other passages we've seen on the topic. But if you turn your Bibles, I will read it beginning in verse. 46 of Luke chapter 9. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you This is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. and We tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Well, if you've wrestled with this passage, you're not alone. But it becomes much clearer as we study the progression of the story and the narrative now. And that's what makes context so essential to understanding passages. We don't interpret verses alone. Just grabbing a verse and interpreting them in isolation. As we now understand, a dominant theme of this passage is due to the arrogance, the pride, the lack of faith, In the last text, the twelve, they couldn't cast out a demon. But then they tried to prevent a person they saw who actually could. Because he hadn't been following along with their group. They weren't part of the club, or he wasn't part of the club. The unnamed man who J. Dwight Pentecost suggests could have been a disciple of John the Baptist is one of the little ones, folks. He's one of the little ones as compared to uh, the disciples who consider themselves mega ones, the great ones. The, the Greek word is megas. They're arguing about who's mega, right? They think they're really great. Um, and in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark nine verse 22, this man is seen as one of the little ones who Jesus declares believes in me. By faith that man was accomplishing in Jesus' name what the twelve were supposed to. But they failed. So so never think, we need to remember this, never think that you're so great, a Christian, that God can't quickly and easily bring in a replacement. He he sure can. Uh, He can quickly find one. Because in essence, Jesus says, even though this little one, even though he hasn't been following along with us and he doesn't belong to our little denomination, I still like the way he's doing it better than the way y'all ain't doing it. In their inflated minds, the twelve were the great ones. They were even arguing about who's the greatest. All others were the little ones. They weren't disciples. They weren't named apostles. They probably had less education, less organization, less association Surely, with Jesus. And before we begin, we need to understand the the, the term little ones. As we progress through this passage, they they aren't exclusively children, folks. Jesus' reference to little ones instead describes believers with less stature, with less reputation than his disciples had, irrespective of age, young or old. Jesus merely uses the, the visual impact of a child the impact of the vision of a child to amplify the warning that he gives. He's amplifying his warning and his illustration. Jesus is warning his disciples here, you guys are just becoming too big for your britches. What you really need to do, you need to humble yourselves. And when combining the two longer accounts that I told you could be found in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus sat down and essentially said this to his disciples. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, Jesus says, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The lesson is they must humble themselves and serve rather than exalting themselves over all the little ones out there. All those who they view as inferior in faith. That would be an appropriate rebuke, considering what we're seeing with the disciples at this time. They had insulted the man that they had seen casting out demons. They had tried to stop him from ministry. Humble yourselves like children, Jesus says. Obviously, he doesn't mean that we're supposed to physically become children. Any more than Nicodemus was supposed to physically be born again. We're not talking about a physical uh, deal here. Uh, Most recorded conversations um, find that it is adults in Scripture who are converted, not notoriously children. It isn't that Jesus' statement implies that God has uh, a harder time or the Holy Spirit has more difficulty converting an adult. God is sovereign. He doesn't have a problem converting even Saul of Tarsus, if he so desires. Um, Even the worst of the worst. The passage also isn't a model of infant baptism, folks. I just want you to know that as we get into it. Sometimes it's used as that. But there's no mention of baptism in this passage whatsoever. No mention of water, no mention of baptism. That's a flawed notion. You can't forcibly fit that into a passage if it isn't there. The fact Jesus is magnifying uh, this child, or amplifying this child, it, it's, He's emphasizing, folks, how this child does not depend on self, does not boast in self. A child is characterized by complete dependence on the father, right? For everything that he or she does, the child is dependent on the father. The principle describes how the disciples miserably failed just a few moments or a few hours earlier uh, with the demon-possessed boy. They weren't dependent upon their father. They hadn't even prayed, Jesus is teaching in order to be successful in ministry, you have to humble yourselves and be as reliant on your Father in heaven as this child is reliant on his Father to provide for him. At the same time, we are to place ourselves into a mindset, folks, to receive into our circle, into our circle of friends, the weakest and meekest and youngest of the brethren. We are to receive them, not repel them. If you want to be great in God's eyes, you have to become a servant of even the least of these brethren of mine, willing to receive brothers and sisters in Christ into God's house. In Jesus' day, do you remember the duty of the lowest servant of the household? As the honored guests would come, Uh, and the owner would be entertaining them, what was the duty of the lowest servant of the household? To wash feet, right? I think that illustration might come in handy for Jesus later on as well. Washing the feet. The lowest servant would be willing to wash the feet. But rather than attracting and receiving the lesser brother, the disciples were repelling the lesser and weaker brethren away with, with acts of pride and, and acts of arrogance. You know, imagine, you think of the people that were traveling with Jesus throughout this time. We've studied just in last chapter, it's chapter 8, we had Susanna and uh, Joanna, Mary uh, of Magdala, the, the, the caravan that's moving along with Jesus as he's teaching. Imagine being with this group and then listening to them Debate which amongst them is the greatest. How offended would you be? So, so just so there's no misunderstanding here, the passage doesn't demand that you place yourself below your children in your household and just allow the little unconverted heathen to rule your house. No. That's not at all what we're talking about here. In Scripture, children of the house don't rule. Jesus' illustration signifies placing yourself below those you might view as weaker, as as smaller or lesser Christians in order to serve them. How do we know Jesus is stipulating believers here? Well, it's very easy. He says so. Matthew 18, verse 4, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Obviously believers, in context he is speaking of here, the brethren, those who are in Christ. And rather than exalting ourselves in, in our own special exclusive group, we are to receive to ourselves even the littlest and simplest ones who call the name of Christ, who bear the name of Christ, uh, who call him Lord. Jesus refers to them in Matthew 18, verse 6 as these little ones who believe in me. Speaking of the littlest ones, I was just talking to the Lauks over there, Russell and Stacy, and uh, going to school this week, uh, Everett, who's like five and a half, just profess that he trusted in Jesus Christ on driving in the car this week, without prompting. Speaking of little ones, praise the Lord, congratulations. The little ones. Um, so this indicates those who Jesus is specifying have a saving faith. They, they are our brethren. Jesus suggests when we receive them, we receive him. And when we Receive him, we not only receive him, but we also receive the Father who is in heaven who sent him. Pretty straightforward. When you receive the brethren, you're receiving Christ himself. For they are part of his body. Um, As a passing caution, just as a note here, a side note, um, because of the way this passage has been used in the past, this particular passage is not highlighting children's ministry. It's not emphasizing children's ministry. Children's ministries as we know them, they, they didn't even exist until about the 1890s. Sunday school was started for the, for the children who were working in the factories during the Industrial Revolution so they would have an opportunity to learn to read and write. That's where Sunday school started 1890s, not that long ago. This passage isn't primarily about children, but if we are really concerned about children, which we are, in our community, we would touch the parents of our community with the gospel. We would reach out to the parents. And God willing, those parents will bring their children to Christ. And they will bring them to church. And they will learn to worship. The kids will come, if it's a believing parent, those kids will come kicking and screaming if they have to. If we really want to be compassionate on children, we will not only have children's ministries, we will be diligent in adult outreach as well. Um, That is the biblical, repeated biblical pattern, by the way. Children typically follow their parents into the faith. Those who become Christians. Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius, the centurion. Then his whole household got saved. Um, If you win the Philippian jailer, Chances are in Acts, you're reading that, the household also got saved. Whole household. God opened Lydia's heart to the gospel. Then God opened her whole household's heart to the gospel. The adult is an unmistakable model of a witness to their children in Scripture. The Holy Spirit has no limitations in converting them. There's not an age limit to becoming a Christian. The rest of the household is influenced through the parent. Timothy is another one. Timothy, who was influenced by his grandmother Lois and mother Eunice, yeah, grandmother Lois. By their faith, by their sincere faith that first dwelt in his grandmother and his mother. That's how Timothy came to know the Lord through the scriptures. The reason the Western churches place such a, I won't say imbalanced, but such an emphasis on children's ministries isn't because the Bible puts forth that pattern, folks. We do so because children are more pliable. They're easier to make do things and to make listen uh, rather than answering the hard objections of an adult, which usually poses difficulty. It's hard to approach adults. It's easier to corral children. But the truth is, if we really want to influence the children of the next generation, we are going to have to reach out to their parents as well with the gospel. We cannot do one and be negligent to win the parents to Christ with the gospel. Because they're going to be the ones that are going to influence their children uh, more than anything, for the good or for the worse. Children's ministries, by the way, remain as important as ever. Don't get me wrong here. I merely bring this up because this passage has really been stretched. Really stretched out of what it's actually teaching um, into some kind of mandate for a certain amount of children's ministries. But the passage doesn't teach that. Child evangelism must not result in the abandonment of adult evangelism. The Bible teaches adult evangelism is child evangelism, ultimately. This illustration was given by Jesus to address the errors of superiority and sectarianism that had come to characterize his disciples. The illustration mandates we humble ourselves to receive and then serve Christians who may appear to us inferior, whatever that means. Even the least of these brethren of mine, Matthew 25, would suggest. As often as we've done it to the least of the brethren, it's as if we did it to Christ himself. But but they're obviously not inferior. And and when we humble ourselves to serve them, we are serving Christ himself. And it's at this time, now this this part of the passage would be between Matthew 18, verse 5 and 18, 6, when John comes forward and makes a confession for this group, it's recorded in Mark and in Luke. You see it in Luke 9, verse 49, if you turn there, where John answers Jesus by saying this, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. You see, John has made the connection of what Jesus is talking about. It's not just about children, but about those who they had been treating as inferior. The smaller ones. The humble ones, your translation might say. Jesus had just stated to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name, in my name, receives me. Seems Jesus' statement convicts John. So John asked for clarification. You'll see in Luke. He says, uh, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. But we tried to prevent him because he doesn't follow along with us. How does that fit? But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him. For he who is not against you, he's for you. Was this person who, who just didn't Happened to travel with the twelve. Was he a believer? Well, the context implies yes. The evidence in the passage implies yes. He was performing a bona fide miracle in Jesus' name. One, by the way, that the disciples hadn't been able to do. One that they had failed at. So in envy, they resisted him. They tried to prevent him. Jesus says, do not hinder him. Do not hinder him. for he who is not against you, he's for you. It's a call for unity. You should have received him as an ally. You should have brought him in, but you didn't, because you're just so busy exalting yourselves. It's chronologically now after John's question, question about this man when Jesus responds in this way. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he'd be cast into the sea. Who's the one of the little ones Jesus is talking about now? It's no longer the child standing next to his side. The dialogue has shifted. It has turned now to John's question. Jesus is answering John's question Even changes his terminology, you'll see in most of your translations, from child to little ones. Small ones, humble ones. Not talking about the child anymore. Um, Probably to contrast him with the mega ones. Those of you who think you're so great. And Jesus' response to John's question is in reference to that believer whom the disciples, they they tried to discourage him. They tried to stop him. They, they, They said they tried to prevent him. And Jesus is warning them not to become stumbling blocks to the little ones who are out there serving in Jesus' name, who they label as inferior somehow, at least in their minds. would have been better if they would have received him and guided him closer into the faith instead of attempting to block his ministry. In fact, it would have been better, Jesus said, they would they would have hung a millstone around their own neck rather than to cause one of these to stumble. He's amplifying, hyperbole, he's amplifying how serious an offense that it is to lay down a stumbling block to those who are ministering in Christ's name. It's also when Jesus warns in Matthew 18, verse 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. And the passage at that point closes with Jesus warning his disciples in Matthew 18, verse 10 this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Who's the little one? It's a man who they tried to stop casting out demons. It's a believer they had despised. A believer they had offended. In their arrogance, the disciples had begun acting like stumbling blocks to the little ones. And through acting as stumbling blocks, they had stumbled themselves. <laughs> Effectively, they had stumbled in becoming stumbling blocks. And Jesus tells them, cut off anything. Amputate anything that will cause you to be a stumbling block to one of these little ones. You follow me? Don't offend the weaker brother. The Apostle Paul Says to be mindful not to offend the weaker brother, even if it stems from the weaker brother's weaker doctrine. In Corinth, eating meat sacrificed to idols was a major stumbling block to Christians nearly con- uh, newly converted from temple idolatry. temple idolatry, excuse me. Paul knew the origin of meat, where it came from, no spiritual significance there. It's just meat, folks. However, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, he says, Not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, they they eat food as if it were sanctified to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, Paul says, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, Paul says, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Different illustration than that of Jesus. Same spiritual lesson. Paul insists if, if it's by eating meat that I become a stumbling block to my brother, I'll cut it out of my life. The mention of Jesus plucking out your eye and severing the hand or cutting off a foot, they're symbolic because there's so many ways that we offend. So many ways we offend. With the disciples, their attitude of pride was offending. They were too prideful. In Corinth, it was... Eating meat that was offending. Jesus says whether it's the thing that your hand touches, the place where your foot carries you, or something you've seen with your eye that now you're sharing with another, even something with your mouth that you eat, whatever it is that causes these little ones to stumble, the weaker brethren, cut it out. Cut it out. One important caution before we partake in the Lord's Supper. Consciously avoiding attitudes or behaviors that cause your brother to stumble. That's the polar opposite of yielding to a manipulating brother who demands that you submit to his contrived legalism. Completely opposite. Using contrived laws or regulations that are not explicit in Scripture, they're not clear, to control others is itself acting as a stumbling block. You follow me? It would be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck than to do such a thing. Um, it could be any number of things. Ones that I don't think I've ever heard here, but I have in my previous church. Uh, people mandate things like breastfeeding. You have to do that or you're evil. You know, Home births, a preferred Bible translation, a day or time of worship that's mandated, all kinds of things. Not explicit in Scripture. It's often the thing that makes that individual think they're the super-Christian. Everybody else is a little one. Inflated without cause by their fleshly mind. They're the ones who command in Colossians 2.21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Yeah, we don't yield to them. Caution in this verse. In such a scenario, they may act like they're offended by your behavior, but they're actually the offender. Fine line there, isn't it? Fine line. I'm going to close here before communion or Lord's Supper with a quote from Pentecost as he summarizes this. Jesus dwelt, Pentecost writes, with the attitude in the twelve that caused them to rebuke the man. The apostles' command uh, offended this man who believed in Jesus. He was doing what he did out of faith in Christ and devotion to him. Therefore, Christ dealt with a problem of giving offense that resulted from the superior attitude's that the twelve showed. Christ's words were designed to bring these men to face the problem and remove the cause of the offense. Christ named the offended man as a believer, Mark nine forty two. 42. Christ said it would be better for one to have a millstone tied around his neck and to be cast into the sea rather than to offend another believer. By this he severely warned the twelve to show how serious he deemed giving offense to be. Pentecost goes on to say, He told the twelve to go out, uh, to go root to the root of the problem and remove it, if one is characterized by pride rather than humility, and if one consistently acts in pride so as to offend those who believe in Christ, he is demonstrating that he does not belong to Christ, and such a one would consequently be dr- thrown into the fire. Christ was not threatening the twelve with the loss of salvation, or telling them that one offense will consign them to hell. But if such an attitude should characterize them, then they would not belong to him. The reason is that Christ's humility characterizes the believer. His humility is reproduced in those who are his own. Unquote.